Well, good evening, everybody. And uh, hello, if I haven't met you before, uh, I haven't managed to meet you at the beginning of the service. Uh, great to have you here. I look forward to catching, after you, uh, catching up with you afterwards. We're going to be covering quite a lot of uh, Ezekiel this evening. I'm sorry if I, that our Old Testament reading slide kind of lulled you into a false sense of security. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 17 all the way through to 23 tonight. But don't worry, we're going to be going quite quickly through it. And for that reason, can I just say, if you're not used to handling a Bible, let me just point out some just uh, basic things. The large numbers in your Bible, in Ezekiel, are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are not footnotes, they're verses. I'm going to be referring to a few of them as we go through, so do try uh, to keep up. We're going to be going through quite quickly. There'll be an outline that you should have got when you came in, and do uh, make use of that as well. It should be inside your Bibles. Come back with me to Ezekiel 17, page 851. And will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as our almighty God, you have not played dumb with us. And in your mercy and grace, you have spoken to us by your Son and the word that testifies to him that we're holding in our hands. I pray, Lord, that you would humble our hearts now by your spirit. Help us to be receptive to some hard words that we are going to read of in Ezekiel. Help us to understand you and your glory more, your holiness against sin, but also your incredible grace to us in Jesus, that we would be living lives uh, that are dependent on him and seek to glorify him. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Now, last year, I got my first Malaysian parking summons. I don't know if you can relate to that experience. I'm sure you can't. But I got my first Malaysian parking summons. That's not me, and that's not the, uh, the guys who got me, but um, just one example of many going on every day, I'm sure. I got my first Malaysian parking summons. It was just out on the road on the other side uh, of the church. It was a Saturday morning. We had an event going on here. I can't remember exactly what we were doing. Uh, and I was convinced that you don't have to pay parking out on the roads on Saturday. And so I didn't, you know, read the sign properly, and I didn't buy, uh, didn't put any money in the meter. I just left it, and I came back, and I found that little piece of paper under the wiper, and I got her a summons. And in that very point, in that moment, I got really angry about it. Uh, parked out on the side of the road, not realised I was supposed to pay, and I got really angry. I started by playing the blame game. If you can relate to that when we get really angry when we've uh, missed out on something. We start by playing the blame game. If only they had put up better signs, if only DBKL had done a better job of putting up a sign both in English and Malay for those who struggle with Malay like me, then uh, it, I would have been fine. I clearly would have paid the meter. Uh, and anyway, why on earth are they charging me on a Saturday for parking? So I just wanted to shift the blame. It's not really my fault. I'm just a victim of the system. And then I was tempted to call them up, just try and bargain with them, give them a, a convincing apology. Call them, I'll never do it again. Can you just please let me off the fine? But, you know, it's been a year since then, and I know that if I had done that, I'd call them and beg them, please let me off. I'll never do it again. Well, I know today that I would have been lying. Because looking back since then, I know I've been rubbish at trying to keep the Malaysian road laws. I've not really honoured the authorities of our land so well in that area. 
Eventually, I had to swallow my pride, stop making excuses, and just pay the fine. But I'd been really stubborn about it. I didn't want to face up to reality that I was guilty, it was my fault, and I had to pay. Now, I know you can't relate to anything like that, I'm sure, but that's just me. Well, Ezekiel has been given a particularly difficult ministry. Well, know that if you've been coming for the past few weeks since we started Ezekiel uh, last month. Uh, God has sent him to speak to what he has described as his stubborn people, Israel. And the message he has for them is not an easy one. They are guilty, it's their fault, and they will pay. Uh, if you remember from last week, we're looking in chapter 16, how God described his people uh, as a young woman that he had nurtured and provided for in every way from her birth up to the point of her maturity. But as soon as she had become mature and God, as it were, had entered into a covenant with her, with his people, she constantly just ran after other lovers. She had no true love, no true devotion or faithfulness for her true husband, the Lord himself. Israel had sold herself out to the other nations and their gods time and again. And so God had told them judgment is coming. And it had already come in part. Ezekiel is speaking to those who, along with himself, had already been thrown out of the land that God had given his people as their good possession. The king of Babylon, another superpower, had come along, put them in chains, and dragged them back to his city. Ezekiel, the guys he's speaking to, all of the noblemen have been dragged back. They're now suffering in a foreign place. But the people are divided. Some are in exile in Babylon, and there are others still in the land and still in Israel's city, Jerusalem. There's still an Israelite king on the throne, who we know is Zedekiah. The less skilled people of the land, according to Babylonian policy, have been left and as long as there was an Israelite king on the throne, the exiles all the way in Babylon could just nurture the hope that maybe, just maybe, a rescue would come. Their king would come with his own forces and liberate them from Babylonian rule. So in chapters 17 to 23, God gives them a series of, as it were, reality checks. And as these words of gloom and doom and further judgment hit them one by one, we see in their responses to Ezekiel that they make each time that they won't face up to reality. They will remain a stubborn, fickle people who will not accept that they are guilty and that they need to pay. We're going to look at reality check one in chapter 17 under the heading, your king isn't coming to rescue you. We had that strange parable story read to us, uh, one of two eagles and a vine. In verse 3, we're introduced to this first great eagle, and it's described in a, a very majestic way. Uh, long pinions, a rich coat of feathers, and bright in color. And It's not just a very attractive eagle, it's a very energetic one as well. It, it, it goes in flight to a place called Lebanon, which was famous for its incredible cedar trees, these amazing tall trees. And, and the eagle breaks off a twig on the top of one of the greatest trees in this place, and then flies to a city of great trade, takes the twig, and he plants it. 
And then he returns back to that land of great trees, and there he takes a seed from the land which was on the ground, and he plants it in terrific conditions. The seed grows until, verse 6, it becomes a low-spreading vine, and its branches turn toward the eagle that had planted it as a sign of submission and dependence, a sign of respect. Its roots remain firmly planted. The eagle's given it the best foundation it could possibly receive. But then another eagle comes along in verse 7. This one is great, but it's not as great as the first. It has much plumage, colorful feathers, but it's not as colorful. It's not described in the same amazing way as the first one. And it's also not energetic. In fact, this second eagle just appears. It doesn't do anything at all. It's just there. But the vine does do something in response to this second eagle. It bends both its roots and its branches towards this second eagle and starts to depend on it rather than the greater eagle who had planted it, that it had depended on. We're reminding how amazing its plantation was in verse 8. Just look at me, Ezekiel 17, over the page in verse 8. It's a reminder, it had been planted on good soil, by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. But now the vine wanted to be watered by this second, lesser eagle. It disowns its true keeper and turns to this lesser, illegitimate one. And God asks the exiles a simple question in verse 9. What do you think of this vine? What do you think of it? Will it thrive? Will it continue its life despite its treacherous behavior? And they knew the answer. They were quite a self-righteous people. I'm sure they say, smite it, burn it. It doesn't deserve to live. Verse 10, God gives them the answer, and they're right. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it sprouted. But then the reality check comes as the Lord explains to them the grim truth behind this strange story. And in verses 11 to 15, he links up the details of this fable with their own recent history. He reminds them how the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had come and captured them in Jerusalem, the first, the great eagle, and how he had taken their king Jehoiakim, who was on the throne, and the rest of them with Ezekiel, and brought them all the way back to Babylon. And then that same first great eagle, the king Nebuchadnezzar, went back to the land of Israel, and as it were, he snapped the top, to the top twig of the top of the cedar, and he planted it in the ground. Speaking of Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's uncle, who he enthroned as king of Jerusalem under his supervision, this great city and people that he had just conquered. Zedekiah is now this low-spreading vine, submissive to the king of Babylon. And to enforce that supervision, Zedekiah was put under an oath, a covenant, a series of promises in which he had to remain faithful to keep the king of Babylon happy with him. But the Lord warns that the oath does not last. Zedekiah soon breaks his word to Nebuchadnezzar in the hopes that this lesser eagle, Egypt, would deliver him. But in defying his true ruler in Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah had betrayed God himself as well. See what God says in verse 19. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my, earth, my oath that he despised, my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his own head. See, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord had warned Zedekiah time and time again that Babylonian rule was the will for his people as they endured judgment from him for their sin. But Zedekiah ignored God's word, God's warnings to him through the prophet. And in the end, he sent envoys and he sold himself out to this lesser power. Come, help me free my people in exile. And now the question comes, but in far more personal terms this time, will he thrive? In other words, will Zedekiah survive for doing such a treacherous thing, not just against Babylon, but against God himself? And the exiles, they know the answer, of course. Zedekiah's days are numbered. His dependence on Egypt would come to nothing. And the exiles' false security, their false hope that he might just come and rescue them, are dashed to nothing. No rescue is coming. Zedekiah, Jerusalem are doomed. So how do the exiles respond to this tragic news that there isn't a rescue in sight because they're suffering God's judgment that they deserve? Have a look in chapter 18 and we see their first response to this reality check. They play the blame game. Chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. See, the exiles decided to wallow in self-pity and to seek to blame others for the hopeless situation that Israel was facing. You know, they'd come up with the ancient equivalent of what we say today, well, I'm only human. It's inevitable. It's not my fault. I shouldn't be suffering in this way. You see, they knew that God had spoke to their forefathers many years before, particularly concerning his attitude to idolatry, what he's already said Israel are guilty of. And see what he says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. He warns his people when first saving them, you shall not bow down to them as the idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, now the exiles see themselves as the supposedly innocent children, suffering for the sins of their fathers, which they themselves had no blame for. But God won't have any of it. Yeah, it may be true that the exiles were suffering in part because of the sins of their fathers that had led to Israel's decline in their faithfulness to God, but it certainly didn't mean they were innocent. See what God says in verse 4. Sets them straight. He says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. And he illustrates this fundamental truth in the rest of the chapter. In verses 5 to 18, we're given the story of a father and his son and his grandson. And things start out well at the beginning of this free generation depiction. Verses 5 to 9, he describes the father, the first generation, as a righteous man who fears God and his commandments. And what's the result? Have a look with me. End of verse 9. 
God declares, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So it's good so far, very positive. But then this man fathers a son. And this son isn't exactly a chip off the old block. See what he says about them in verse 10. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, then we've got this long list of transgressions, all the ways in which this son defies God and breaks his law. And what's the result? Verse 13, he shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. But then God speaks of the third generation. We have this son's son, the grandson. Verse 14, now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. And what is the result? As this son turns from the sins of his father and seeks God, end of verse 17, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. God would judge each of his people individually for their sin. As he said, the soul who sins will die. But what does that say about the current generation? of Israel, the exiles in Babylon, and those back in the land. Which generation of this hypothetical family do they belong to? Well, God tells them in verse 30. Verse 30, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. See, the exiles, those back in the land, were no less sinful than their parents or their grandparents. They could try and shift the blame, but God just wasn't having it. They were chips off the old block. They followed the sins of their fathers. And yet God, still in his mercy, pleads with the exiles in Babylon to turn from their sin. Look in verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Turn back to me. And live. And yet the exiles, they show no sign of doing that here. They continue as a stubborn people, wallowing in self pity, just trying to shirk the blame, pretending they weren't responsible. Now, I doubt we today here in the 21st century blame our ancestors when we suffer for our wrongdoing. But I know in my heart, I'm pretty good at playing the blame game when I'm in a difficult situation because of sin I've committed. You know, I fell out with someone quite recently, just in the past couple of weeks. We had a really serious argument. We'd been close friends for a long time. It was one of our first big falling out. And for the following week, I couldn't stop just thinking and meditating on all the ways in which I felt I was innocent. I wasn't guilty at all of the breakdown in our relationship. I just kept on blaming this other guy, my friend, in my mind for the entire argument we had had and all of the awkwardness that had followed as a result of it, the misery, the sulking, the difficult meetings. But when we came to reconcile the issue, when we sat down and started talking through it, it was only then that I realized just how selfish and arrogant I had been. It was a silly argument, and in many ways, I was responsible for the breakdown in our relationship. But for that past week, I wouldn't have any of it. 
I was only concerned in blaming the other party. You know, just like Israel. It's true, isn't it? We can be so stubborn about owning up to our wrongdoing and admitting we're at fault. Well, God gives them another reality check as they refuse to admit their guilt before him. It's in chapter 19 for us. The second reality check, your leaders are no more. Not a parable this time, like back with the eagles and the vine. This time it's a song, a funeral dirge, a lament over someone's death. Look, we beginning of chapter 19. He tells Ezekiel, and you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Take up a lamentation, a song that mourns the tragic end of my people's kings. In verses 2 to 13, they describe the fate of Israel's most recent kings using more imagery. And yet the really bad news for the exiles hits them after the story in verse 14. Have a look in verse 14 with me of chapter 19, verse 14. Ezekiel finishes this story of the fate of these kings by saying, fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. That last line, no scepter for ruling. Ezekiel laments that after God's judgment against his people, after Zedekiah is gone, after Jerusalem is destroyed, for Israel's king, it looks like that's it. The monarchy is going to end, and Israel are going to be left leaderless, no scepter for ruling. Now, that might not seem like a big deal for us today here in Malaysia, or if you're British like me back in the UK. We don't have a really close connection to our kings or our queens, do we? If they, I'm not hoping this happens, but if they were to, for some reason, just disappear tomorrow, if the monarchy was just completely fold in on itself, as some guys from the UK want at the moment, it, it wouldn't change very much for us. It wouldn't completely overturn our lives. Things would continue as normal. But for Israel, the fate of their monarchy was a far more serious matter because God had made some incredible promises concerning their kings, concerning particularly the kingly line of Israel, now being threatened with destruction. King David, 400 years before, God had promised that one day he would have a son who would sit on his throne and bring lasting peace and security to all of God's people. He'd bring security from their enemies. He would basically enable them to live under the blessing of God's rule again. And now here, Ezekiel is telling them, your kings are finished. The line is destroyed. Can you imagine how they felt? Strangers in a foreign land at this point, occupied in enemy territory, listening to Ezekiel sing this song, of the death of the very ones that they held all their hope in, their only hope for rescue. And it wouldn't have taken long for that tragic song to spread. And as Ezekiel starts the second year of his prophetic ministry, the elders come to him and they are really shaken up. They're really hoping that Ezekiel and God can give them some consolation. Surely there's some hope. So here we have their second response, one of fickle repentance. This is a desperate attempt that they make in order to put things right. Have a look in chapter 20, verses 1 to 4, page 854. 
In the seventeenth year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. I mean, these guys are scared to the bone. They want to show Ezekiel some respect. They want to show the Lord some fear now. But God says, I won't let you inquire of me. I'm not going to give you any consolation through my prophet. Why? Because he's so familiar with their continual, fickle devotion to him. Their track record as a people were terrible. And just in case they'd forgotten, God says, you're not to tell them anything more than give them a history lesson on just how unfaithful they've been. So starting with the day God first worked to establish his people as his own precious people, we read in verse 6, On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And as God did this, he just asked his people, look, I've saved you. I've brought you to myself. Now live for me, your good and perfect master. Worship me alone as your God. But verse 8, they rebelled against me. They were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And so they, fra- they faced the threat of God's punishment. And yet God in his mercy relents time and again. Verse 9, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among them. Verse 22, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Again and again, generation after generation, it's just this cycle of fickle devotion for a time, followed by disobedience, followed by judgment, followed by God relenting in his mercy for the sake of his name. God was all too familiar with his people's half-hearted and shallow repentance toward him. You know, coming to him for mercy when the penalty for their sin just got too much, but then completely forgetting him after he had spared them. My son Josiah is growing up pretty quickly. A few months ago, he would run toward me. He'd put up his arms like this, and I would pick him up. And he'd just rest on my shoulder. It was a wonderful feeling. He just wanted to be with Daddy, content in my arms. But now, things have started to change. Now, when he runs towards me, he puts his arms up in the air, and I pick him up. And he's on my arm for about one or two or maybe five seconds, and then he gets really restless. He's just looking everywhere else. He just wants to get to something else. He's not so content to stay in Daddy's arms anymore and just rest there. Instead, he knows he can use me and my height to get to objects in our house that otherwise he can't get to. He can get to the glasses on top of the cabinet and smash them on the floor, as he has done in the past. He's not content to just rest in Daddy's arms anymore. Now, that's okay for a baby. You know, Josiah's a cheeky fellow, but that's all right. But friends, that's a horrific way to treat God. The exiles, they come to inquire of him, but they don't do so with a genuine heart. 
It's as if they're asking God to pick them up, but they're not interested in devoting themselves to him again as their God. They're not showing any kind of genuine repentance and remorse for him. They just want to placate him, get the judgment out of the way, move past again, and then continue living for anything but him. You see what God says to them in verse 32? This is what was in their hearts as they came to inquire of him and see if they could do anything about this coming judgment. Verse 32. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. That was the true nature of their hearts, even as they came seeking God's mercy. You know, save us from this, but we've got no interest in you. You know, as I reflect on the way these elders act and their motivations here, I, again, I feel convicted. All those times when I've come to God full of sorrow for my sin, but only because I'm now experiencing the consequences of it and they're painful. I've got very little concern to genuinely turn from that sin and turn back to him and submit that part of my life to God. You know, I remember running an errand in KL recently, and uh, I had been going down the road, and I knew I'd been speeding, I'd been going too fast, and this police car had just appeared in the rearview mirror. I don't know how long it had been there, I think for quite some time. And not only had I been speeding, but I didn't have my passport with me, which for an expat, a non-Malaysian, that's a big no-no as well. So what did I do? There in the driving seat, police car in the rearview mirror, I prayed. I kept my eyes open, of course, but I prayed and I confessed. I said, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that I've been speeding. I'm sorry I'm not respecting the laws of the land. Just please get me out of this bind. Please just cause that policeman just to take the next right turn or look the other way. I really don't want to face another summons. I don't want to have to face the consequences. And he did look the other way. I didn't get stopped. But you know what? Since then, I know that, again, I haven't been overly concerned to be surrendering that part of my life to God, of honoring the authorities he's put over me for my good, and so honoring him. You know, that says a lot about the attitudes of my heart on that day when I was praying to him and asking him for mercy. I wasn't genuine in my repentance over my sin and the consequences I was facing for it. I just wanted to get away from the penalty. I wasn't at all bothered about turning from my sin and back to the God who had loved me. Well, chapters 21 to 23, which we are going through far more quickly now, continue the theme of God's inevitable judgment and for such blatant disregard for him. It's the third reality check he has for his people. Two things about his judgment. It's inevitable and it's inescapable. Chapter 21, God tells Ezekiel to groan. And when the exiles ask him why he groans, he says to them, verse 7, because of the news that is coming, Every heart will melt and all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. Judgment is coming, it's inevitable, it's inescapable. Ezekiel is told to take this long sword 
and to cut sharply to the left and to the right, whichever way he faces, amongst the people who are watching him at the time. And then he takes this sword and he places it on the ground and he has to mark out two roads, two paths from Babylon, where they were, to Rabbah, an Ammonite town, and to the city of Jerusalem, their precious city. And then he tells them, will God bring judgment against Rabbah, the Ammonites, who were sworn enemies of Israel and sworn enemies of God? But no, Ezekiel takes the sword and he drags it from Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem, to his city. 22 verse 1. The Lord came to me saying, and you, son of man, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city? And then declare to her all her abominations. And that's what Ezekiel does in the rest of this chapter. He just lists the sins that have occurred on every level of society in his people. From the king to the street sweeper, no one is innocent. Not one is guiltless before God. In fact, things are so bad that look in verse 30. 22 verse 30. God says, I sought for a man among them, that's among his people in Jerusalem, who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. God looks for just one righteous man in Jerusalem so he could have a reason not to destroy his people and his city. And yet not one righteous man is found. And so in chapter 23, he just continues. He describes his people as an adulterous sister. Two sisters. The first is Samaria, who had gone into exile for their sin in Assyria years before for her unfaithfulness. And Judah had seen that happen. But they didn't repent. They just continued in their sin as well. In fact, their sin grew to be greater of that of those who went into exile before. And so God says the judgment will be worse on you. There's no one out there to rescue them. They are guilty. They must pay. They can't blame anyone else. They can't shift the responsibility that they deserve for this judgment. And their fickle repentance, their half-hearted cries to God will not work. And yet thankfully, so thankfully, for us today, in the midst of the dark clouds of this gloomy message, of judgment, there are small rays of hope just bursting through. Come back with me to Ezekiel 17. Because we didn't actually finish that story, did we? Ezekiel 17. God is going to act. He is going to relent in his mercy once this judgment has passed for the sake of his name and his promises. Ezekiel 17, verse 22 Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender vine, a one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it every, will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches." God would not abandon his promise. Using the imagery of the story again, he promises that he will one day in the future sit a king on the throne of Israel. And he tells us two key things about him. He will be planted on the mountain heights. 
Now, the exiles in their minds, that's Jerusalem. That's the temple. That's associated with them being able to dwell in the presence of God and enjoy his blessing. And that's what this king would make possible, for them to come back into the presence of God without fear, despite their sin. And then secondly, we were told, weren't we, every type of bird will find shelter under his branches. This king would not just shelter Israel for the judgment they deserve in their sin, but those of the nations as well. Anyone who would take refuge in him. Friends, that's wonderful news because just like Israel, we all need a shelter. We need that savior who could not be found in Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day. We need one who can stand in the breach between us and God's judgment that we deserve on our sin. And unlike Israel, as we've seen, God is faithful. Jesus Christ, his son, came to dwell amongst us, what is now for us history, not to rule us like a human king, but to live and die for us as the servant king, the only one who ever lived a truly blameless life before God, who did not deserve to be accused. And yet in his love for us, he went to the cross and he bore the blame for our sin in full. He shed his innocent blood in our place. He became our substitute so that we could be spared the wrath of God. So that we, like Israel, could have the promise of living in God's good presence again through his king. Despite our sin. Oh, Jesus is that king. The crucified king who was then raised, exalted to the right hand of God. Where now he sits, interceding on our behalf for those he came to save. Those he came to shelter so that we might be spared. Friends, as we wrap up, let me ask you, how are we responding when we wrong God in our sin and others as a result? I wonder, do we identify with the exiles and their attitudes from our overview of Ezekiel today? Maybe you've been coming to smack for a while or just recently, uh, and you know you're not a Christian. Well, can I just say it's great to have you here with us. We are delighted that you're choosing to spend your Sunday evening here and listening to God's word being taught. But I wonder, can you identify with the exiles in their first response today to the news of God's judgment? They were just desperate to shift the blame. That's what we're so prone to do, isn't it? Rather than take responsibility, we're quick to just somehow justify all our wrongdoing and point the blame away from us. I cursed that driver, but it's the traffic's fault. Just all these arguments that we rationalize in our minds. I'm not guilty. It's always somebody else. It's always some other situation. I'm okay. And yet God's word is clear. Israel were guilty of rebelling against him as Lord, and so are we. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll know we haven't loved him and honored him with our hearts as we should. And, you know, Israel, they thought they were better off just trying to pass the buck, deny the blame, But as we've seen, that did nothing but make God's judgment all the more certain on them. Friends, don't be like them if you're in that situation. Our only hope at any time is to confess that we are guilty before God, to rely on his mercy. As we read in our New Testament reading in Hebrews, we can have confidence to enter the holy places, that is to come into the presence of God without fear, 
by the blood of Jesus. Nothing else. By the blood of Jesus. Through Jesus, we can be cleansed of all our guilt, all our shame. We don't need to shift the blame. We don't need to pretend that our sin isn't there because Jesus has taken it for us. So we can stand in God's presence without fear. We can look forward to eternal life in his kingdom rather than what we deserve, his judgment on our sin. So if Jesus is not your king here tonight, can I urge you, repent. Take your sins seriously and put them on him. Get under his shelter so that you can stand confident before God on that final day. But I know that the majority of us here, well, we've done that. You know, we're, we're fine confessing our sins during the week and each Sunday we, we believe in the rescue that God has granted us in his son. But I wonder, maybe we as Christians can identify more with the elders of Israel and their second response, that of fickle, half-hearted repentance. You know, they cried out to God for mercy in their crisis, suffering for their sin. And yet they had no desire to really turn back to him. I wonder, are we taking God's mercy to us in Christ for granted? You know, there's that habitual sin in our life that denies that Jesus is our Lord and we just don't want to let go of it. Could be an addiction to porn that we're fueling in private, away from watching eyes, an anger issue that we fail, refuse to recognize, uh, that inappropriate relationship that we just enjoy so much. And we persist in whatever that sin might be because we have that perverse thought in the back of our minds, it's okay. I've got God's grace. God's going to forgive me. Jesus' blood can deal with every issue every time, so we confess it in the week and we confess it on a Sunday, but with no intention whatsoever from really turning from that sin and from coming back under God as our king. And friends, just like for Israel, that kind of fickle, false repentance is not acceptable to God, even today. You know, the longer we allow a sinful habit to fester in our lives, the more our hearts consequently are hardened to him and his word and his grace. You know, tragically, it happened to a friend of mine back at college. He appeared when I first knew him to have a great love for Jesus. But he then started sleeping with his girlfriend. And he knew it was wrong in God's eyes. He knew that sex is God's gift for marriage and it's destructive when practiced outside of it. And so he repented. But he kept on going back to his girlfriend's bed. Repented, went back, repented, went back. But in the end, he just realized he didn't really have any desire to turn from that sin. And after a while, he stopped praying. After a while, he stopped coming to church. After a while, he had no time for Jesus. His heart became so hardened by that sin, he lost all interest. And he took sexual pleasure as his God. He exchanged God's grace to us in Christ and eternal life for the lie that somehow sin and the destruction it brings is better. And it's so foolish. Friends, God can see our hearts, even if we can't. And he encourages us again in our New Testament reading, in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, 
our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And now make no mistake about it. Yes, tragically, we will sin. And as we repent of that sin with a true heart, with a desire to turn from it and come under Jesus as our king, surrender that part of our life with him, we can trust we do have a savior who has cleansed us from all our guilt. But if that desire is not there, if we confess our sin, we're just using God as a magic genie to wipe it away with no concern to love and honor him again. Well then, friends, we are just letting ourselves fall prey to the tyranny of sin. If we're really disciples of Jesus here at Smack, we're going to keep on repenting with a true heart. We're going to keep on desiring Jesus over and against our sin, even as we commit it, even as we repent of it. And friends, it's interesting how that New Testament reading ends, isn't it? The emphasis it puts on, therefore, encourage one another. We all have a responsibility to one another here at Smack 2 to be looking out for one another, to be asking one another those difficult questions, to be opening up to one another and talking about our struggles so that we would not fall victim to this kind of habitual sin that would lead us away from Christ. Don't be like Israel. Don't play games with God. He calls us, like he did them, to turn to him and live, that we would not perish. So let's be doing that in every area of our lives in the coming week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that though we are worthy, I know I'm worthy of everything that you threw against your unfaithful people Israel and more, you have shown us awesome grace. You have given us a substitute in your son who has taken the penalty and the blame that we deserve so that we might be forgiven and cleansed of our every sin. I pray, Lord, for those who are yet to recognize their guilt and their need for Jesus, that in your mercy and grace you would grant that tonight. I pray for those of us trusting in him but who are getting complacent, who are starting to presume on your grace and starting to seek sin rather than repent and seek you. Lord, have mercy on us. And keep us ever mindful and ever dependent on your grace to us in Jesus. And help us to be supporting one another as we enjoy that same grace with you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.